You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Crime Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders. My name is Stuart Blues and I have a very special guest with me for this interview episode. I have Louise Shorter with me. Welcome, Louise. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. Thank you. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about your career, but the main reason we're here really is the new show that's coming out on CBS Reality called Wrongly Accused. So this premieres on March 21st at 10pm on CBS Reality. How did you get into this show, Louise? Well, I've worked in the field of wrongful convictions, miscarriages of justice for, well, I'm I'm sorry to say it's nearly 25 years now, a very long, a very long time. Um, <laughs> I started working in journalism and I then set up a charity that dealt with wrongful convictions. And I also teach, I teach law students at the University of East Anglia. And I was, as part of my teaching with them, I realised that that sort of younger generation didn't know about those really old miscarriage of justice cases. Or, they're not all that old, but they're sort of the, the ones that aren't immediately happening now. They didn't really seem to have knowledge of them. And I thought that was a great shame because there's real learning to be had from understanding what went wrong in those cases and how the law changed, how investigative processes changed to make sure that, that sort of thing didn't happen again. So they've been very influential. So I, I thought it was a shame that those stories were kind of being lost through this sort of you know university age around about that kind of generation. And so because I have a background in the media, I started talking to media friends and contacts about, wouldn't it be great if we made a series? And it took, a, you know, I was sort of talking to various people and I then got involved with other projects and I ended up sort of shelving it for a little bit. And then I was very lucky to meet David Howard and Monster Films, his production company. And yeah. that sort of dual interest in both history, historical events and crime and justice issues. And so I spoke to them about it. And from there, we just sort of this idea evolved, really, about, you know, we can have a series which is telling the stories of five cases where somebody was wrongly accused, in some cases also convicted, and in one case hanged for something they hadn't done, for murder they hadn't done. And then with each of the cases, we thought it was important to, to sort of also tell the stories of who had done it really and what happened with that investigation and how were they, was, they, was the truly guilty party eventually identified and, and CBS Reality were really brilliant at picking it up and running with it and giving each of those stories two hours, which is which is a real luxury from a programme storytelling point of view. It's good, isn't it? Because it comes in two parts each episode. You have the first part, which kind of outlines the case itself and how the wrongly convicted party, I'm not going to say suspect, I'll say party, was imprisoned. The first one I watched was Barry White, episode one. I've seen that one, which was brilliant, which you actually worked on for three years, I understand. I did. So when I was working as a TV producer at the BBC, I started working on this investigative strand called Rough Justice. So it was a TV series that went out every week for sort of blocks of weeks of time, and then it would have a break, and then it would come back later in the year and do some more. And that series had been running for a very long time. I used to watch it when I was a, a teenager, and absolutely just thought it was amazing that, that this group of journalists could come along and say, well, actually, you know, this investigation thought that this had happened and this person was guilty, but actually we found evidence which shows that something went wrong. And I just thought it was incredible that journalists of all people would do that, could do that. So I started working at the BBC and managed to sort of 
inveigled my way into the Rough Justice program because I was just such a mega fan of it. Started working there. And one of the very first cases that I worked on, we had a letter from a prisoner's father saying, my son has just been convicted. We're absolutely convinced he can't have done this. He wouldn't have done it. It's not within his nature to have done this. And would the program investigate? So I was sent off to go and have a look at the case. And, and it all started from there. And that then became an investigation which took three years to turn up the evidence to put out a programme to say, we think there's a real concern with this. I worked on that programme with a reporter called Mark Daly, who's done a lot of investigative programmes, a lot of work. So it was really just the two of us. So we did that programme and eventually the conviction was quashed. And that's what wrongly accused takes you through all of that process of how the evidence was found and, and how the guilty party was eventually identified. What sort of due diligence do you take at the first point? So you've received that contact from a prisoner's father. There must be something that you have to investigate before deciding you can take it further. What sort of things do you do at that onset of receiving such contact? Well, it's very important for me, I think, to always make sure that you identify really early on what's the very best thing the prosecution case has. Because everybody in prison says they're innocent. You know, every every yeah. single prisoner has got a story to tell about how they're innocent and they shouldn't be there. But there's a difference between, you know, somebody thinking that, that they're trying to find a way out or want to find a bit of a legal loophole or, you know, just try in their luck, whatever it might be, to somebody who is actually properly, factually innocent, as in didn't have anything to do with it at all. They're the kind of cases that, are, that I've always worked on. So what I always try and do is identify what's the very best thing that convinced the jury that this person's guilty. I never want to spend my time or resource or convincing scientists or lawyers to spend their time working on a case where somebody has actually done it. You know, those people take the very difficult to find help away from really deserving individuals. So you find the very best thing the prosecution had, the very best thing that convinced the jury. And then you look at that really, really closely to think, does it stand up? Because if that evidence is really solid, then I should walk away from this one and I'll go to a case that's more deserving. So in the Barry White case, the key piece of evidence really was the the lighter flint, wasn't it? That was the main thing they were leaning on. And the jury were given testimony from an expert witness, quote unquote expert witness, and it kind of led them into the guilty verdict. That turned out to be incorrect based on what the episode reveals. I won't go into it too deep. But what do you think of the jury system then? How reliable do you think it is? Are they open to persuasion from so-called experts because their lack of knowledge is there? Well, I think the jury system is the, is the best there is. And I'm you know, very much a, a supporter of the jury system. I'd rather have that than have a, a panel of judges. I think it's an important principle that we should have 12 people, you know, having 12 means that we are sort of trying to iron out any biases that might be there. So we've got a big enough pool. And I think it's really important that we should all be judged by our peers ultimately. But but the difficulty with expert evidence is that experts are the only category of witness who can give an opinion. So if you or I see something, a crime taking place, we can be called as a witness and we can describe what we actually saw, but we can't give our opinion on, on it. We can just yeah. describe what we saw. An expert is in a very special category because they are allowed to, based on their on their qualifications, on their training, on their knowledge of cases, they're able to say, so I've found this and this and this, and therefore I think this, this my opinion on it is that. And so they're able to give their, their opinion. And that means that 
there is a danger, I think, that expert evidence can come down to a kind of a beauty contest, really, that it's really down to who is the most persuasive individual. And sometimes with some expert evidence, whether it's science or medicine or whatever it might be, with some of that evidence, the truthful position on what the evidence means can be quite complicated and quite hard for a jury to understand. And yet that might be where the truth sits. And it might be the expert who is just the best talker, who is the most charismatic in the box, who is able to present a, a scenario, paint a scenario that actually means that's going to persuade the jury. And so that's quite dangerous. And I think, you know, we, we need to be very careful to make sure the evidence that appears in court from an expert is really solid, has a really solid scientific basis to it. So just by way of an example, you know, DNA evidence, people sort of see that now as the as sort of gold star level of evidence. You know, if you if you've got somebody's DNA, but well, that's a pretty good indicator that they've had some involvement in this. But scientists will tell you that we need to be really careful about assuming that DNA means guilt, because there can be all sorts of ways that DNA moves around. There can be all sorts of reasons why DNA isn't in an area where you think it might be because somebody's been there. So it's it's actually it's really complex. And it, so we, I think we have to make sure that the funding is in place so that defence legal teams can get the experts they need to be able to really properly understand precisely what the science is, is saying, what it tells us about whether somebody's involved in a crime or not. And we need to make sure that juries have a really good, clear understanding and explanation. So there's things that we can do to make the system better. And I think that, you know, expert evidence is difficult, but I'd still rather have a jury if I was being tried than any other system. Absolutely. I think I would too. What's your opinion on prosecution teams, the people who are going out there to convince a jury that this person in the witness box is guilty when that might not necessarily be the case? What's your moral take on that? Well, they're doing their job, aren't they? They are. They have a job to do, which is to assess the evidence which the Crown Prosecution has put forward to them, which the police have gathered, and to take that and present it in the best way. It will have already reached a certain standard for the Crown Prosecution Service to to be convinced that a charge should be brought. So they have to they have a test to be able to make sure that they think yes, we've got a, a, a good prospect here of getting a conviction. So the evidence should be in place. And we have various checks and balances within our trial system. So, you know, if a, if a trial begins and there isn't really good solid evidence against a suspect, then we have legal checks where a defence team are able to say, there's no case to answer here. We, the, the judge, you should stop this trial and you shouldn't allow it to go forward. So, so we have good checks and balances in place. And I think, you know, prosecutors are like, other lawyers that are doing their work for the defence teams, they are they have a job to do and they are doing it in, to the best of their ability. And I'm, I'm sure that, you know, by and large, they're all good professional people who are who are decent human beings all at the same time. I think the area that I sort of worry about a bit sometimes is whether or not defence teams have all that they need to be able to properly defend a client. Have they got legal aid funding to be able to go through all of the material in the case and find out if there's something in there which the police or prosecution, which the police have found, the prosecution have got that actually helps the defence case? There's a, it's a, to do with disclosure. There's a, a legal requirement for disclosure to be made so the defendant can have a fair trial. If there isn't sufficient funding in place to make sure that the defence lawyers can go through all that material, then they can't do all of that check. So that, that's kind of difficult, you know. 
I think they come back to a question. I think the thing that the prosecution teams often do very well, and in some of the cases that I've worked on, the defence teams don't do so well, is that the prosecution very often, they are painting a picture of what happened. So what the jury hears from the prosecution is, this is our account of what we think happened on the night of the murder or whenever it might be. And they have a kind of a joined up picture. Well, they've got all the, you know, all of it's like a dot to dot, all of the little bits of the puzzle are all there. And they convince the jury of this overall picture by presenting evidence from all these different people that make all the dots to join up the picture. Very often when things have gone wrong, I think that what's happened is that the defense don't do that sufficiently. They sort of take a position that it's for the prosecution to make the jury sure of guilt. We don't have to make them sure you're innocent. We just, you know, the the burden is on the prosecution to do that. And so I think that very often when there's a wrongful conviction, the person in prison will say, I wanted us to call this witness or I wanted something else to happen or I I thought we should do more on this or that. And we didn't do it because my defence team thought that the prosecution didn't have enough to convince the jury. And yet the jury apparently was convinced. So I think that we have to make sure it's not so much criticising prosecution teams. I think it's really important that defence teams do all that they can to be able to convince the jury that this person is innocent and not just sort of rest almost on their laurels, but actually it's the prosecution that's got to make the jury sure. Because because if you've got a picture that's being painted by the prosecution team of what happened that night, that's one big cohesive picture that you know makes sense. If the defence don't do that to the same extent, then I think that can leave them in doubt. And maybe then sometimes it's just that the prosecution was more persuasive. Do you see what I mean? Do you understand what I'm trying I to do? I do, yeah. And the way I'm kind of thinking it in my head is the old saying of innocent until proven guilty. It feels like that's almost changing in well, recent I think, times. Yes, I think that, that it ca- there's a danger of that, Stuart, that with that because of how persuasive scientific evidence, particularly DNA, can seem, I think that there is a danger that we've, we've, we've moved more towards that. I think it's a it's a, an issue that we need to be alive to. You know, if there's something like DNA, or in Barry and Keith's case, in the first episode of Wrongly Accused, for that case, you know, there appeared to be scientific evidence which appeared to show that the victim was in their van. And that appeared to be really compelling. And that must have been really important to the jury because there wasn't a lot of, lot of other evidence. Yeah. So that must have been really important. And I think that actually we've got to be very careful to be able to convince the jury that don't be blinded by that. Don't be blinded by that science. You need to look at other aspects of the case to be convinced, to be sure that they are guilty. How many of the episodes have you actually worked on the case? I know you mentioned that one of them ended up being wrongfully hanged, so I'm guessing that's not one that you worked on. I'm not that old, Stuart. (laughs) (laughs) How many of them have you worked on yourself? Well, that was that Baron Keith is the one that I've actively investigated, and I kind of, you know, along with me and the reporter Mark Daly, I consider that to be my case because I, you know, I, I lived and breathed it for so long. Um, another one, Stephen Kisco, absolutely was not my case, but I feel as if I, as if it influenced me so much because when I was growing up, Stephen Kisco, who was convicted of murdering a, a child, he was a big, tall, lumbering, gentle giant of a guy who had a very tiny fiercely proud and loyal mum who absolutely was convinced that he didn't do it. And she campaigned and campaigned for his release. And eventually his conviction was quashed after, I think it was 17 years, after a very long time. 
and he would eventually got out. But I think it's just that I didn't work on that case in any kind of investigative way or legal way, or I didn't make a program about it until this one. But it influenced me so much as I was doing a lot of my early work on these cases. The solicitor involved in that case, a guy called Campbell Malone, uh, was an absolute inspiration to me because the odds were completely stacked against him as a lawyer and Stefan as the prisoner and Stefan's mum. But the three of them just battled on until and they managed to find a way through a system that wouldn't allow them to do what they wanted, wouldn't, you know, wouldn't allow the new work to be done. But they just managed to find a way through so that eventually it was all put right. And I think that that was just hugely important. So that was a, you know, massively inspirational to me when I was growing up in my sort of formative years. The other cases, so we've also got Colin Stagg's case. Colin was stood trial, started a trial, accused of the murder of a young woman called Rachel Nickell, who was murdered on Wimbledon Common. There was a bit of footage, if you remember, of her running towards a camera. She was really beautiful. She had a, a small child, a toddler with her up on this heath in London, a very public place, a very busy place. Um, and she was murdered in the most horrific manner. And I think that her murder touched so many people because there was so much publicity around it. And it did me too. But I think also what happened to Colin Stagg stayed with me for a very long time because he was absolutely vilified by the press. He had lived on the same estate with his family in a bit of South London council estate. For many years, he'd lived with his dad and they were a very well-known family, very well-liked. And because there was such a huge media campaign with the tabloids just desperate to get some kind of lurid story about him, it sort of got to a point where people that he thought were friends and neighbours, some of them weren't. And that was absolutely horrific for him. Um, I think it just sort of shakes your trust in people that you think are friends and neighbours. And the means by which he was sort of really pursued through a police investigation, which involved, you know, what sort of been described as a honey trap operation was pretty awful. And so I think, again, with that case, it just stayed with me for so long of realising that, you know, there but for the grace of God go any one of us, frankly. You know, if you just get caught up in an investigation in some way and you can't absolutely convince the investigating team that you're innocent and they don't find evidence which, you know, shows that you're innocent, then you, you just get caught up into what must be an absolute nightmare. It is worrying. I remember in the in the Barry White episode, I keep referring to it because it's the only one I've seen, but it was his friend Keith, wasn't it? And he was driving past when they found the body and simply inquired as to what they were doing and he got arrested. Absolutely. And, and it was, and Keith did that through an act of concern. Yeah. You know, that was because he was worried about, about Barry, his friend's girlfriend, having been missing for a couple of days. He spoke to Barry's mum and said, there's a lot of police activity here. She said, you know, will you go and ask them then, Keith? But from that moment, he was taken into police custody. And I think also there are so many lessons from these stories, which I'm really pleased that we've got them on CBS Reality because they are you know, really clear indicators of how things can go wrong. And it might seem quite small, but they really matter. So in that case, when Keith stopped, a photograph was taken of his van by a local newspaper reporter and it was plastered on the front of the local newspaper. And so part of the, you know, body found police investigation sort of headline. There was also a photograph of his van being covered up and taken away, which then switched the investigation off because everybody started phoning in with sightings of vans. That, that was really irresponsible reporting by that newspaper mm -hmm. to put that on the front of the news, you know, on the 
on the front of the newspaper in that way. So so we all have a part to play, whatever roles we play in life, you know, whether it's being a reporter or being a scientist or a lawyer or sitting on a jury, we all play a part in understanding and realising that it happens, it does happen, it's still happening, and we just need to make sure that it doesn't. Can you talk to me about these trigger points? I thought that was a really interesting point of the episode. It seems like the way I understood it was it's something in an investigation that sets it on a specific course, almost like you've got the blinkers on. Can you tell me a little bit about trigger points and how important they are in these cases? Yes, yes, it was the it was the sort of idea of of the director who thought we need a they call it a tipping point. Um, you've got you've got into gun mode with you. <laughs> I've been on a walk recently, and they have trick points on walks. I think that's yes. why I put trigger points, tipping yeah. points. Like it's the, the same show. idea. It's exactly yeah. the same idea. So a tipping point <laughs> in each case where we are we are able to focus on one aspect of the case where something something started to happen with the with the investigation that meant that either attention was taken towards that particular aspect of this case. So in the Barry and Keith one, which we've talked about, it's those particles in the in the van. So, so the scientist saying, I've got scientific evidence, which I say puts her in the front of the van. And that that meant that, that all the investigations started looking very closely at Barry and Keith. Without it, the case wouldn't have, have got into court. It's important, I think, to sort of try and focus. What they try to do with the series is to focus on this one aspect so that we can really see, sort of understand the story clearly. Very often with these cases, you can end up going down a bit of a rabbit hole. So you can find that there are so many aspects of a case. You get absolutely swamped in detail and you can't really see the wood for the trees. So we try to sort of focus within them on an area where we think, look, this is what happened in this case and this is where we, we where we think it's it's really key the story will continue after these quick messages and now back to the story talk to me about inside justice then so this is your charity that you founded in 2010 and it sounds like you're doing a similar thing with this charity and have been for the last decade or so people write to you they think they're innocent or that someone they know is innocent how did the charity come to be founded I founded it. I set it up, but it wasn't my idea. I was working for the Rough Justice programme at the BBC and Rough Justice was axed. It was cut from the BBC because it was expensive to make. It was difficult. There were always sort of issues with, you know, are you going to find witnesses? Have you got enough of a programme? Always difficult, risky kind of television. And it was expensive and it had just gone out of fashion, really. You know, we'd sort of reached the stage in the mid 90s where all of our programming was sort of more like house makeover shows or cookery programs that kind of you know quick and easy lifestyle kind of stuff so rough justice have been axed and there were other programs that were on other channels there used to be trial and error on channel four world in action on itv would do good investigations but they'd all just kind of gone out of fashion so they'd all been dropped so somebody um came to me a guy called eric mcgraw who had a long history of doing work involving prisoners um, he'd set up a newspaper called Inside Time, which is a free newspaper for prisoners. He contacted me and asked me if I would write a story for the newspaper about rough justice being axed. So I so I did that, and then I got involved with the paper. And, then, and at one point, he said to me, "Well, if the BBC is now axed rough justice, where do people go in prison if they say they're wrongly convicted? Because we used to have this great interest from the media, but now it, it doesn't exist anymore. So where do people go?" And he asked, "Is there anywhere particularly?" where there's in the media or has links with the media that people can apply to. And we sort of realised that there wasn't 
but that kind of organization didn't exist anymore. And so he said, well, why don't we see if we can get some charitable funding and set it up? And I thought it was completely bananas. You know, I thought it, I couldn't understand that foundations or trusts would give money for this kind of thing. So I didn't really think we'd get it off the ground, but he seemed pretty confident. So we, we went to different charitable foundations and trusts and that kind of thing. It took us nearly three years, two and a bit years to get the funding, but we got the charity off the ground. And it's now a registered charity. And it essentially, we have a, an advisory panel of experts. So we have a, a body of people who are forensic scientists and lawyers and former detectives, people with all kinds of you know, very good experience on how to investigate crimes and how to work out if there's something new evidentially that you could do that wasn't done previously at the time of the trial. And so prisoners can write in and they can apply to the charity. I'm not involved in the day-to-day running of the charity anymore. I stepped back from that. I set it up 12 years ago. I spent the you know, first 10 years of its life really living and breathing the charity. And, it, you know, really, I investigated a lot of cases, did a lot of work involved with it. And now I sort of stepped back. I, I look at I look after a couple of key cases that I've that I've been involved in for some time. But the charity you know, is, is there. It remains. So prisoners can write in if they can't get help because they can't get a lawyer or they can't access a forensic scientist or they just don't know what to do, then they can apply to the charity and get some advice. What's the most shocking case you've investigated or your team's investigated where you thought, how has this person ever been convicted in the first place? Well, I think it's a, I think that's, that's quite difficult because, you know, with each of the cases that I've looked at and, I've, and the cases that I've been involved in where I really, you know, properly investigate them and really properly lead on the cases, very often the, the investigations can take many years and very often haven't been quashed by the Court of Appeal. They're still trying to go through the legal process. You know, less than 2% of all serious convictions are quashed at appeal. It's a very, very difficult thing to achieve. Somebody described it once as um, like pushing an elephant up the stairs. And it kind of is a bit like that. You know, at every turn, there is a reason why you can't do something or why you can't get the access that you need or you can't reach the legal hurdle. So it's difficult. But I think that I'm hesitating about picking one out because, (laughs) because I don't want to do disservice to the other ones that I think are also absolutely deserving and are deserve to have their cases back to the Court of Appeal. But I think if I had to choose one, I think I made a couple of programmes not long ago, about three or four years ago, about somebody called Colin Norris, a guy who's in prison for murdering elderly patients with insulin. And I don't believe that anybody in in his cases have been murdered at all. I think that he's completely innocent and he is serving a, a life sentence currently. And so I think that, you know, that that's a case where he is absolutely completely innocent. It's about the fact he's only been convicted because the medicine and the science wasn't really understood at the time. Um, and I and I think that we've had different cases throughout history where the law has tried to deal with something and convicted something, somebody, and then actually found out that we just didn't really understand the medicines, the medicine and the, and the, the medical evidence behind it at the time. And I, I think that's happened to Colin. I think he's completely and utterly innocent. Okay. I think it's important. I took this from the website in insidejustice.co.uk saying the aim of Inside Justice is not to decide whether a person is innocent or guilty, which is crucial, but rather to test evidence used at a trial or to uncover new evidence which could prove their innocence. I like that because it's from the outside, if you didn't look into it, 
you might think you're turning into a defence barrister of some kind, which isn't the case. It's more about questioning what was tested. Was it tested accurately? Could it have been tested with better technology improvements, for example? Was anything missed? So it's good that you point that out on the website. Not for profit, of course. It's a charity. I think it, it sounds like you do great work. How many sort of requests do you or when you're more involved with it, I suppose, would you get over the course of, say, a month or a year, however you want to go through it? Well, there's, there's applications every every month, and it, it sort of runs to hundreds by the end of the year. It's a very difficult task, and it's a, very, it's a tiny team. It's a small group of people. The very best thing about the charity is the advisory panel of experts, because they are, and if you go onto the website, you can see who they are, and you'll see that they are the most experienced individuals. They are at the top of their game whether that's in forensic science or law, whatever it might be, you know, they are tremendously experienced, tremendously well qualified. They are, you know, internationally renowned in their areas of expertise. And yet they also give their time completely for free. I mean, you know, what an amazing bunch of individuals to do that. And they do that, I think, because it's really important to them individually that whatever their area of expertise is, whether it's DNA or pathology or blood pattern analysis or law or whatever it might be it's really important to them that it's presented properly in courts and it's dealt with appropriately and so they want to always want to make sure that the courts are dealing with their areas of expertise appropriately and I think also they fundamentally believe in the rule of law so they, they fundamentally believe that and it sounds a bit simple really but that guilty people should be in prison and not innocent people. And that if something has gone wrong with the way that evidence is understood, that they want to be part of making it possible for somebody to have expert help. So very often, because, you know, this isn't a party political thing, successive governments have reduced legal aid over a very long time. And that's just the reality of it, because public funding is is, as it is. But that does mean that it's very hard now for somebody who's in prison to get the kind of expert help they need. So if you imagine that you may well have legal aid all the time you go through your trial, when the guilty verdict comes in, if you're innocent, that is the time you need help most, arguably. But what happens at that stage is that you will probably lose your lawyer. You probably won't get any funding to be able to go and ask a forensic scientist for some help. The chances of getting funding for that are very, very slim. You've got to be able to kind of demonstrate there's a very, very good reason for it. So if you're just kind of trying to ask an expert, is the science okay? Is there something that could have been done differently? You won't get public funding for that. So what Inside Justice does is it makes it possible for those individuals to get that help. And that's only possible because of all of those fantastic scientists and lawyers who give their time for free. Sounds like you're doing great work. But bring it back to wrongly accused. So as I mentioned, this is premiering March 21st, 10pm on CBS Reality. There was a touching point, I think it was in part two, which should, I think, air the week after, where you meet Barry White for the first time since his release, which is quite a touching moment. How did that feel? Oh, it was, it was, I feel a bit emotional you asking me about it now, to be honest. I mean, it sounds so weird that I hadn't actually seen him since he'd been released. It's so bizarre because you throw yourself into the into somebody's because you're at the heart of their conviction and you're trying to work out what's what's happened and is it sound and you know should there is there something we can go to appeal you are right at the heart of everything and you work so you're so close to them and their family for a very long time but then when the conviction is quashed of course my job is done 
And I don't, so I, I keep in, I've always keep in touch with everybody that I've worked with and I've tried to help. I'm in touch with their families by all social media or email or text or whatever. We're in touch to that extent, but we'd never actually met up. And I think that's a bit of that is to do with feeling that, you know, that I've, my job is done and I don't want to interfere in his life. I just want to, for the court system, for the appeal system, to be able to do what it needs to do to test whether the, whether somebody is in prison correctly or not. So it didn't, you know, so so when wrongly accused said to me, well, what about meeting up with Barry then? I kind of, you know, I, I thought this is going to be so weird. How brilliant. <laughs> How weird. And so and I realised that when I met up with him, I was just kind of became a bit motherly with him almost and felt quite, I felt very emotional. I felt very teary. I think it was just so sort of special to sort of see him and realise that he's okay. He had a very, very tough time of it. I mean, the, you know, if you watch the programme, he's very candid. He talks all about that. And he he had a tough old time, but he's, and that's not surprising because he was put through a horrendously traumatic situation. You know, he was a, a bit of a kid, really, working in a sports shop. And then suddenly he was accused of murdering somebody. And then he was in prison and he was serving a life sentence and he was terrified. And so he found it very hard to cope with all of that and very hard to cope with suddenly being told, okay, your conviction's quashed, you can go back to having a normal life. So he found all of that really difficult. So to see him now and to give him a hug and to see that he's doing okay was really brilliant, really lovely. Amazing. Well, Louise, it's been a pleasure having you on. Good luck with the show. A reminder to everyone, Wrongly Accused, it's a new groundbreaking true crime series from CBS Reality. It premieres March 21st at 10pm. Good luck with it. Thanks for your time and I wish you all the best. Thanks, Stuart. Very pleased to have been here. Thanks for asking. Thank you.